So I've never been a, a massive car freak. I'm a driving freak. I grew up on a farm in Australia, so I had the freedom to drive and ride whatever I could. My mum did a hell of a lot. You know, she taught me how to drive. It wasn't my father, it was whenever I went go-karting, it was pretty much with my mum. It wasn't with my dad. He, the, my main rock as a kid growing up, doing what I was doing, really centered around my mum. It's a choice. You know, it's it's up to up to us to decide who we want to be in this moment. And as far as he was concerned, my career was finished. And we just didn't talk for three months. And he just said, the days of you ever getting to Formula One are finished. It felt like torture. Um, and then sort of ideas started to kind of flow from that of what we could do. You know, to have a race team where fans, drivers and engineers had a lot more access into the goings-on. The world of uh, opportunity and possibilities are out there, so um, anything can happen. It becomes quite a minefield, I think, for a small niche manufacturer in particular, or any manufacturer. Where do you put your bets? You know, where, where do you commit to? Before I start, thank you for listening. This is the Ignition Podcast. Get ready to fuel your passion for cars and motorsport every Monday and Thursday. We bring you stories, valuable career tips and tricks that will help you navigate the automotive world. So don't miss out. Follow the Ignition Podcast now and join the drive towards becoming the number one automotive podcast worldwide. Let's embark on this thrilling journey together. Dave, welcome episode. to the podcast. There is a question I'd like to start off with and that is what ignited your passion for cars? Um, I would say <laughs> my passion first is driving, then it's cars. So I've never been a, a massive car freak. I'm a driving freak, I guess. Um, I, I, I love, I love to drive cars of all sorts. And if you look at my career, I've had a very wide range of vehicles to race, um, and I enjoy the driving part of that and learning about a new car, the way, how you get the best out of it uh, and how you get the best out of yourself when you're driving those particular cars and the, and the challenges you might have mentally driving different cars that perhaps you, you know, you find might, might be a little bit challenging to drive, a bit difficult, and you've got to get your head around it. Um, you know, that, that's the thing that I've enjoyed the most, I would say. Yeah. And so for you, when was that moment? Because I know for me, I, I did go-karting as a kid and I can remember the first time I got in a go-kart, you hear the sound of the engine behind you. He can, you can feel everything. It's all very surreal. So for you, what was that first moment that you experienced driving and the love for that? Well, uh, might surprise you to, to hear this, but I, I grew up on a farm in Australia. So I had the freedom to drive and ride whatever I could. Um, mm. And I, when I, I couldn't reach the pedals, so I would sit on my mum's lap. Uh, so we had <clears throat> four and a half thousand acre farm, and we actually had to go through through a farm to get to our farm. So you had no public roads for quite some distance. So as soon as we came off the public road and went through the gate and closed the gate to then go on literally like a, I don't forget how long it is, it must be, two two three miles inland to to get to our farm mm. and it was all dirt roads and corners and everything and of course i would then sit on my mum's lap and off we go so yeah. i got a, a a sensation and a feeling of of having con some control of a vehicle at quite an early age um even though i never really thought about racing um i, I enjoyed the sensation and the feeling being in control of a vehicle gave you at an early age. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I mean, I, th I would have thought that your driving passion would come from your dad, but to hear that it started with your mum is quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, my dad retired when I was five, so I don't really mm -hmm. remember his, his racing. Um, uh, I was born here in the UK. He was racing still in Grand Prix racing. And uh, when I was five, uh, we moved to Sydney. You know, he sold up and in terms of the Grand Prix team, not his other businesses. And I ended up uh, growing up in Sydney from the age of five till 13. Um, mm. And we had a couple of farms during that time. And I went to an agricultural boarding school to learn about agriculture because we had the farm. Um, 
I was more interested in playing football, soccer. That was my passion. I guess as a kid, it wasn't necessarily cars or driving. It was definitely football. I, I wanted to be a Manchester United player like millions of other people that weren't good enough to get there. Um, but, it, it, you know, I, I really enjoyed the game. I enjoyed the competitive element of it. Um, you know, I used to play on the left wing. I used to score a lot of goals because that's what motivated me to go to a football match was to mm. see the ball in the back of the net. And there was no better feeling than that as a kid. Um, and then when I went to the agricultural boarding school, uh, they didn't play soccer. They played Aussie rules football. So I had to learn a completely new discipline of, of a ball, which didn't look like the shape of a normal ball to me. It was more like a rugby ball, uh, but slightly different. But I really enjoyed that as well. So I really, you know, I loved sport as a kid. You know, I, uh, I would do all sorts of sports in school and represent the school in all sorts of different um, activities. And that was my, I, you know, schooling was challenging, slightly dyslexic, and, you know, it was a bit of a challenge. But in terms of sport and, you know, I excelled at sport didn't matter what mm. I did, I kind of excelled at it. So I had a very competitive uh, nature about me um, and it didn't matter what I was doing. I, I, it was a do the best you can to win. That was the kind of mentality. Uh, but I also had, was fortunate enough, obviously, to, to go back on the farm and drive vehicles and, and ride motorbikes with utter freedom. And it was always as fast as I could from point A to point B. Mm. Uh, it wouldn't matter if it was in a car, a tractor, a ute, a motorbike. Um, it, it it was just flat out and sideways. And, and the thrill of driving on the limit, uh, again, pushing myself like I did in my sports that I did uh, outside of that, um, it showed obviously a competitive nature that was being harnessed for racing in the future, but I didn't really know it at the time because yeah. I wasn't even thinking of racing. So, um, you know, I, I was able to drive fast on the limit. So when I eventually did get in a go-kart for the very first time, which was when I was about 17, um, I jumped in and it was a bit like Dr. Water. I kind of had been training myself up until that point on the dirt, on the farm with utter freedom, as I said. And then to get on a, on a track, feeling the grip of a go-kart, um, it became quite a natural thing for me. And, you know, it things happened very fast after that in terms of a career, put it that way. Yeah. And before we get to the career that you have had, I, I am interested in the role models in your life. So your mum, your dad, your PE teachers, like, what did you learn from them? What did they give you the advice you remember that would make you the person you are today? If you look back at the, the key moments of what do you remember the most and what was the advice you were given? them? Yeah, I kind of feel that, you know, that let's say big influences in my life were sure uh, my mum, you know, my, my, my mum gets kind of forgotten in all of this because my dad is such a dominant figure in the world mm. of motorsport and everyone assumes, oh, your dad did everything. But actually, my mum did a hell of a lot, as mums do, you know. Um, and for me, you know, she taught me how to drive. It wasn't my father. It was, mm. it was her sitting on her knee. Um, whenever I went go-karting, it was pretty much with my mum. It wasn't with my dad. He had businesses in Sydney, businesses in the UK, my brothers were racing abroad. So, you know, the my main rock as a kid growing up, doing what I was doing, really centered around my mum. Mm. So she was, a, she was a role model. Clearly, my father was a role model. Uh, my older brother, Jeff, who I went to visit when I left school at 16 uh, to work on the farm and go to a wool class in college in Wagga Wagga. Yeah, sounds exciting. I know. Um I uh, I went to America to watch him do IndyCars for the very first year he did it. He won the Can-Am Championship in 1981 and 1982. He went off to IndyCars uh, with the big Cotter race team. And I followed him for about three months, saw a go-kart in a workshop, 
first time I'd ever see a racing go-kart. Didn't even know people race go-karts. I asked a very stupid question in, to the mechanic working on it in a workshop, which was my very first racing workshop I'd ever been in. And, he's, and I asked him, do people race go-karts? I had no idea. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my older brother was definitely an inspiration. But when I think about all the people I've met in my life, I've gained so much from every one of them to become who I am today. It's, it's not the people, it's not always the people you assume it is. It's other people in your lives that, you know, uh, have helped shape you. So there's been many, many of those for sure. Yeah. And so if you had to, in I guess one sentence, summarize who you are today, who would that be? I'm me. I mean, it's hard to, it's actually hard to describe uh, it in any real detail. I am who I am. Um, and, you know, I'm the makeup of, uh, you know, my parents with the upbringing that I had and the, the my friends and family. And like I said, it's so many people who influence your life. You know, you kind of, you are who you are and 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 I'm and I'm me how people want to describe that or label that up to them I'm sure I do that myself and probably not always in the right way either you know I think for all of us we're in the same boat um who are we really I'm not sure we really know that yet to be fair I don't think we've evolved enough of human beings to truly understand who we are uh, we have concepts and ideas that are always evolving and changing of li as life goes on. So um, we do the best we can with what we know to date. Uh, we can always try harder. And there is always ways and mechanisms for us to be able to do that. There's a lot of wise people that live on like today on the planet. There's been a lot of wise people in the past you can draw inspiration on and, and guidance um it's a choice you know it's it's up to up to us to decide who we want to be in this moment yeah i guess it's, it's quite succinct you're not putting a label on yourself and not defining yourself to one thing because i guess that can be quite limiting if you did that yep yep and and we do you know i think mm. we, we we do we get stuck in 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 those places and it's sometimes it needs a something to or somebody to sort of sh shift you in a, in a different way and, and get out of that locked in position, uh, which I think is important and, and good uh, is positive. Um, as long as I think there's that drive and that, um, that thirst to be a better version of yourself. Yeah. And today, when did you learn this from them? When did you learn this? Because I guess it comes from, like you said, the people around you, but when did you get to this realization that actually, it takes time. Like it's not going to happen overnight. Like what were the lessons that you've learned from your life so far that give you that, I guess, for you? Um, it's a good question. I mean, there's many, many things, but I guess the easiest way for me to describe is when I grew when I grew up and I was racing like go-karts and, and Formula Ford and things like that. When I first started, you know, my dad, my dad didn't say a great deal, but when he did say it, boy, it went right through you, mm. you know, because he knew what he was talking about. And, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, you don't always think your parents know everything. And then sometimes you think you, your parents do know everything and they don't. So uh, for me, in terms of racing, you know, he, he, he said something to me once prior to an event where I went, oh, okay, I get it, was he pointed to his head and he said, David, it's all in here. And the the first time I really understood that was a race in Adelaide in 1987, and I was doing the Formula 2 race there, and, and it was whoever won that won the Australian Gold Star, which is something my dad never managed to achieve so it was a nice one to try and get and i uh went to america racing uh, in former atlantic over there and and came back dusted the f2 car down because i'd done some f2 races in that year went there car broke down every time i went out of the pits so i never did a qualifying time and i started mm -hmm. last 30 something 
Now, leading up to that, I had a massive argument three months earlier with my dad, told him my girlfriend was pregnant. And as far as he was concerned, my career was finished. And we just didn't talk for three months. So um, I did the qualifying, obviously, and and I was last. And that obviously pissed him off. So um, I'm standing there in front of him with my mum trying to bridge this gap. You know, it's not a comfortable feeling, you know, not speaking with your father like this and you're you're about to jump in the in the car and you know he was wearing a formula one pass and i said oh you better get me one of those for when i'm in formula one and he just said the days of you ever getting to formula one are finished so you can imagine the reaction i had i i literally blew my top blew my top completely i told him to f off and I steamed off. I put it. I put my little Walkman on. I, I put my head earphones in, and I was listening to music. And I just completely went into this place, which I'd never been in before, where winning winning that race, the intensity, the intent, um, the desire, the passion, the belief, all elevated. The anger that I had inside me, I turned to determination that I was going to win that race regardless. I there was after that point, there was zero doubt in my mind that I was going to win. Mm. And I, ju- I jumped in the car and I got into the lead with a lap to go and I won the race. But I drove at a I drove at a level I never knew existed within me. Just never ever saw that coming. Uh, if I hadn't have had that argument and hadn't gone through that process in that race, I would not have understood at that point what he meant when he put his finger to his head and said, David, it's all here. Mm. So for me, it was a massive lesson. You know, halfway through the race, my dad's grabbed hold of Ken Turrell. He's grabbed hold of Jackie Stewart and he's up at the up on the pit wall saying, hey, look at this, you know, um, I know that because my mate was with them. So he was telling me all this afterwards. Um, and, of course, he's got the stopwatch. There was no timing screens or anything like that. But he could see I was lapping two seconds a lap quicker than everyone else. So it didn't matter. I, whoever's in the way, I was getting past them. Mm. I never touched anyone. You know, I went from last to 17th in the first lap. So I went from 35th to 17th on lap one. And then by lap two, I was like up in 10th. So I was, I was going after people like you wouldn't believe. And it was because I was in a very different mindset to how I'd ever been prior to that, even though I'd won races and things like this. But this needed something extra extraordinary to happen for me to, to win that race. And that happened within me. It didn't happen outside of me. It happened within me. And, and I, that was the time where I really started to look and search for things where I could develop my mind to help me with what I was trying to achieve in my racing. Mm. So I would, I would read all sorts of books, you know, uh, from spiritual books to non-spiritual books um, and, and just pick up who, what I could. And, and, you know, there was some drivers in Australia that I, I looked up to who I went to see and, and speak to and try and unlock some of the secrets in their mind and w- how I could shape that and, bring that into my life you know and you know I kind of went down this this path of evolution and and I would say you know it kind of had its moments you know there were times where I really got it right and there were times Mm. when I didn't and and I would work on that Um, but as I got older um, I got better at it and I understood more about the people around me and how to get more out of them which then made it a team success. And because when you're young, it's all about you, you, you. Um, <clears throat> when I got older, I realized it's more than that. It's more about the people around you and how you get the best out of them and, and the team environment, the mindset, listening to what people are saying, how they're saying it. Is there anything negative in what they say? Right, let's attack it. Let's let's talk about it. Let's turn that to a positive, not a negative. You know, it would be, I, I that would be my role within the team, I guess, 
uh, you know, for the later part of my last 10 years, I'd say, of my full-time career. Um, and that's when my, that was when I probably had my most success as, as well. So I learned, I learned a lot out of um, the mental side when I had that argument with my dad. I needed to build the bridge. He hacked me off. I jumped in the car, all peed off and just so determined to, to prove him wrong. Um, I, that's when my life changed, you know, my, my driving changed, my career changed, you know, I went to Europe, um, and I carried that, that momentum, uh, which, you know, I'm still here. And that was in 1988. Yeah. Cause it's interesting to understand that that could have, I mean, that could have made your brain broke you that, that, that him telling you that, you know, totally. F1 and it could have, and it's funny to see that you chose the, the path of. I'm going to prove him wrong rather than, okay, I'm going to walk off and, and sulk, sulk in the car effectively. Yeah. And it's important. Yeah, because, no, absolutely. Yeah. I, it's, no, it's interesting. I, I mentioned that just to, I'm asked the question in the first place, just because this podcast is, is to help people figure out what they want to do with their passion for cars. That's the whole tagline. And if they knew that they could do it, why wouldn't they see it all up in their brain? And it's finding this for you. You found that thing that motivated you. And it's finding that motivation. And I'm just interested. Did you ever ask him why he told you that? Did you ever question why he said, you know, become an F1 driver? Was that something you just assumed that? Uh, yeah, I just kind of feel like I knew because it was very obvious. My dad, you know, grew up in an era where, you know, he achieved a lot. But he to do that, he had to sacrifice a lot. And, you know, my mum played a supporting role as as the kids did all the way through his career um whether it was me or my brothers mm. um and no different to my family when i was doing my career it was the same thing you know it was supporting my career and sacrifices were made to make that happen um uh, but for him in in his day it was literally you know, wives and girlfriends stay out of the way. You don't have a baby early on because it's too much responsibility mm. in his mind to be a professional driver because he knew how selfish you had to be. Um, now he had a farm to think about as well. It's like, well, who the hell's going to be running the farm if if David's gone as well, going off to race? You know, there was lots of lots of things going on. He could. From what I understood, I, I did a race at Orange in a go-kart race, and he was there, um, and the track conditions were half wet, half dry, so pretty tricky on slicks in, in a go-kart, and I won by half a lap. And he apparently at that time, he, he went, oh, shit, okay, this kid can go all the way. And so he pinned a lot of hope on me getting to Formula 1 and saw me as the person to do that within the family and he didn't like the fact that you know i was going to be taking a baby to europe with me i get it mm. you know i get it i'm older now I, I i i get why he would have had those concerns except for a bit like when we had the argument i decided no i'm going to mm. turn that into a motivator Again, it's a bit like, well, got a child. I'm not going to like just walk away. We're going to. I went to England for a full year without, you know, when when uh, Jason was born, you know, I went back for the birth, came back, did the full season on my own, and then brought brought uh, Fiona and Jason over um, uh, at the beginning of '89. Now it didn't work out in the end, but. I never set. I never lost sight of what I needed to do in a car. Mm. You know, it motivated. It motivated me to um, to do those things. And I, and as later on, I found that actually, <clears throat> to get that extra bit, I always I needed something to trigger that. And so sometimes I'd actually search for things that would actually hack me off, <laughs> and and that and I turned that to a motivating factor to 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 keep to keep at the level that I was at. I, I, I needed something like that to just keep pushing me because, mm. uh, because you know, I see lots of drivers 
you know, have up and down days and we all we all had them. I didn't like it when it happened. And I was always trying to make sure I was in the right mindset leading up to the race. And I know when I wasn't, my performance suffered. Um, and when it was on, I was on, you know, so it was very, very easy to see where where your deficiencies were in a race is because you weren't mentally in the right place, you know. Yeah. And it's just interesting because it's it's great to know that you can find that within you. Because for me, I'm looking at just outside of my own selfish interest to, to know that if I want to be better at what I'm doing, it's not not taking anger as an example, but taking something that's passionate enough and, and a force that mm. you know that, for instance, I think if I look at times that I've succeeded, like when I played rugby as a kid and stuff like that, it was because, funny enough, someone had kicked me in the balls and I really wanted to hit them hard. Yep. And that's it, it, it's, it's something like finding that and being able to harness that and use that to progress yourself to make yourself better to, to find the thing that works for you um yeah, yeah what don't... motivates you what what can spur your motivation but no i, I wanted to, i wanted to ask you more about so like jason is it your son yeah so uh, jason is one of my sons but he mm, uh, she yeah she she did she didn't enjoy the uk and in 89 she went back to australia um and she never came back so that was the end of end of that relationship although you know i still communicate with with jason obviously because my son um so then lisa came into my life and then been with lisa ever since and you know we've had two two kids as well so sam and finn yeah yeah no it's just because i wanted to to understand what that does to you from a career perspective as well like how does that how does your because you you found this thing that motivates you but now this has happened and you you've been told that your son's going to affect your racing so how do you deal with that and how do you how did you find the, the steps to cope and, and to progress going from there? Um yeah, I mean if I fast forward like to literally the day, the week, the week my previous girlfriend and son, oh, Fiona said, I don't want to come back, you know. I think we should end the chat, end the relationship. I don't want to go back to the UK, and I get it. You know, I kind of, I kind of knew deep down that that was probably the right decision. Um, that was the week of a race at Brands Hatch, and I told my team what had happened, and I, I was obviously devastated by, by the news, um, and I was not in the best place that weekend. Um, I qualified on the front row with Mika Hakkinen. We did exactly the same lap time, but he did it like a lap or two before I did. Um, I went round him on the outside of Paddock coming up to a back marker, and I won the race. Um, and despite feeling incredibly low and devastated, and I remember Murray Walker saying, oh, and David Brabham's got flu. You probably think I had flu because the way I was, um, but it wasn't flu. It was, I was devastated that, you know, my girlfriend's walked away and my, uh, I'm not going to see my son that much, you know? Mm. So um, it, it could have had a massive negative effect on me on that weekend. But I guess, and I don't, I don't, I couldn't, don't know if I could articulate why, but it just, it just was so, you know, I could just keep focus on what I had to do, um, I, I felt like that was not only what I wanted to do. It was, it was I had a responsibility for the team, you know, the sponsors. Um, my job, I was a job. I was being paid to be an F three driver, which was very mm. rare back then. Um, so, for me, it was you know, I got a job. This is what I got to do. I got a championship to win. Um, I, I'm, I've got to do what I got to do, and. That was that was my mindset going into that weekend, and I came away with a race win. So, um, you know, I've had several things come at me, but I've been able to get through it and still deliver on, on the circuit. Mm. What did that was a while ago. So yeah, yeah. No, it's it's it's, it's something that I guess it's it's. I'm just trying to find a pattern in if that makes sense of of the times where, you know it almost you hit flow i guess is what i'm trying to get at the, the moment where you're, yeah. you're in that space where you're as efficient as you can be because your mind is at the, the level of competence and skills what i like to say is and it's 
interesting that those points you remember winning races and being the best you were the points where something dramatic's just happened or something that maybe affects your mind but it's i'm interested in the resilience for you to bounce back and and where that's come from as well i think that's something that was just in me you know i don't Mm -hmm. think it was taught as such it was just something within me um I don't think so. Maybe it was. I, I don't know. But it's just like I said, it's hard to articulate. It just kind of I just kind of got on and and did it. You know, you're talking about the flow state. You know, for me, I've had um, different levels of that in my career. And the older I got, the more aware I was of it. And also aware of, let's say, techniques to help me get into that state where you don't think you, you, you've gone past the point of conscious thinking you are just doing. Um, and that's when you're at your highest alert, you're most sensitive with the car <clears throat> and where you feel totally at one with your environment that you've entered a, a different level of consciousness that it's hard to explain unless you had it um and many people have it's not just in racing um and it's an amazing place and and i kind of feel like as as a i can only speak as a driver being in that mental place it's such a incredible place to be in you're not always in it you know you're only in Mm -hmm. it in special circumstances such as a race you've prepared well, you've got yourself in a mental state that allows you to get into that flow. And it's the most amazing feeling. And, and I think as drivers, you know, when you're, when you retire, you harp for that. You, yeah. you, that's the thing. That's the thing I miss the most is being in that state of mind. And of course you're in the most competitive environment. Everyone's trying to beat you and you have to be at a place that allows you to do your job the best possible way to extract everything out of you and the car to win that race. And, you know, some of, and some of my best races were in the American Le Mans series. Uh, Certainly in 2008, you know, I was post 40, but I was probably driving the best I've ever driven. And the motivating factors were fantastic competition that got me excited. Um, I had learned so much mentally to, in terms of my mental preparation, my physical preparation, um, everything, all the, all the mixture was there to, um, to give me everything I needed to be in that place, to let the magic happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I understand. And it's something that I guess if you, you mentioned like wanting to find it more after you finish racing. And so when you, well, I want to talk with you to when the end of your career as well. And so like, when do you realize that actually, okay, now is the time to, to stop driving around a track and now to, like, did you want to stop? I mean, you know, I know you haven't stopped, but like in terms of like a full-time career, like when was the moment you went, okay, maybe now is the time to, to look up avenues. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I was thinking like when I was 40, I was thinking years ahead, like 10 years ahead, what am I going to do then? So all about the brand and what we're doing today came from, from back then but i was still a professional driver i got to 2012 um, i was in the middle of a court right at the end of a court case to get the brabham name back out of germany which took seven years and took quite a lot of energy too much energy really Chin is releasing a clothing line this clothing line is something that we've been working on for quite a while now and behind the scenes been figuring out how could we give back and the way you want to give back is give designers 30% of everything that's sold. So if you buy a t-shirt, 30% of the profits from that t-shirt will go directly to the artist. It's just a way for us to show the great and amazing talent that is in the automotive and motorsport world. And that means if you do have a design or an idea for a clothing line, give us a message. Email me at harry at ignitionpod.com. That's harry at ignitionpod.com. I'd love to have a chat. But anyway, back to the episode. Oh, and before you go, podcast listeners get 15% off. So check the show notes below for that code for you. You mentioned it took a lot of time and energy. So I was just wondering, like, from a mental standpoint as well, like, what were you sort of going through that time? And, and like, how did it feel to finally, like, sort of get the name back? And for those who don't know, what was the story behind that as well? 
Uh, well, I would say it felt like torture, actually. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I no, I was forty when I when I was racing and thinking ten years ahead. You know, what am I going to do when I retire? Um, I would be fifty, too old, too slow. No one will want to sign me up, so I've got to do something. And I said to my dad, you know, look, we got this iconic name, but you know, we don't do anything with it. So we've got to do something. Um, and throughout the process of, of looking into it, discovered that, uh, you know, someone in Germany had actually registered Brabham and Brabham Racing. So we didn't actually own the name, uh, which obviously was a big problem. So um, I decided that I would go to court to get the name back. Uh, and that was about a seven year process. And, you know, I'd never been in that situation before. Uh, so mentally, I'd say it was probably the toughest period. Um, my racing was really busy. I was in the middle of a court case. Uh, 2008, I would say, was my purple patch. That's probably the best I've ever driven in any any time in my career. 2009, on paper, was my most successful, I guess, winning Le Mans and also uh, the American Le Mans series. And I remember reading, you know, top top 50 sports car drivers in the world and David Brabham's number one. But I didn't feel like I was number one at all. Uh, I was not the same driver as I was in 2008. I think the court case and everything else that was going on at the time, uh, you know, my wife started up a, a business as well. So there was a lot of pressure going on. And I think it affected me. Uh, greatly that year I, I sort of kept going because of my experience and you know with the with Peugeot I knew that I, I had a certain job to do there and I and I couldn't do much more than that because my brain just wouldn't take me down that road to where I needed to get to where I was say the year before mm. um, and I just had to I had to had to get through it and yeah I won Le Mans and won the American Le Mans series um, but I, I was mentally uh, struggling, I would say, at that point. And then fast forward to 2012, where I've now got the Brabham name under my control. It cost everything that I had to, to, to get the name and go through the court stuff. I never got any money back. So it was a bit, bit, bit like starting again. Um, yeah. And then it was about going off and talking to investors, which I'd never done before. So that was another massive challenge to try and find a way of actually getting a project up and running that was worthy of, of the Brabham name. So uh, throughout that whole process, you know, mentally, I'd say that was tougher than anything I've ever, ever gone through for sure. Mm. Um, being a driver and a professional and, you know, that was kind of easy in, in, in a way compared to stepping out of that world and, and going into a completely different uh, world of business and, and investments and language that I just didn't understand. I The amount of times I had to Google, <laughs> what, what's that word mean? What's that word mean? You know, um, and, you know, I, I know I went through lots of lows and, and got some highs, but lots of lows, more lows than I, I, I've experienced before. So I had to learn how to deal with that. Um, which is never easy. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for, you know, for people who go through, um, you know, mental challenges. You know, I've been there, I've lived it. Uh, I know what that's like and, and I know how important a support network around you is. Yeah. Is that how you learned to deal with them? Was was, was the support network a way of dealing with it? What was the other things you did as well to, to deal with the struggling and, and the toughness of the situation? You know, that's a really good question, and, and I'm not – it's not really one thing. It's lots of things, um, as long as I think you don't give up and you you keep trying. And I, I tried all sorts of, I guess, things, and I, and I had to keep going back. For me, what worked in my racing was meditation, mm. just trying to quiet the mind down because I have a, I have a, a habit of overthinking. So – uh, trying to quiet that monkey mind that I've got in my head that sometimes turns into a gorilla um, uh, can be can be quite challenging. So yeah. uh, having the discipline 
to quiet the mind and 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 try and distract yourself on on other things as well and and appreciate what you got around you because you can be so so tunneled vision like him, um that you only see this little world and there is a much bigger world out there and you know um it, you've got to sometimes step back and appreciate what you do have and you know that's not always easy either no it's a good thing gratitude is an amazing amazing thing we like when you refer to the monkey side of your brain I think there's a there's a book which describes the monkey the human and the computer and it's sort of distinguishing each part of those bright your brain and going right okay how would the computer react to this? How would the human react? And how would the monkey react? And it's kind of like almost disassociating the monkey side of your brain and going, well, that's not me, that's a monkey. And it's, it's an interesting way of going and, and splitting down problems as well. Yeah, sort of s- separating yourself as witnessing the monkey and witnessing when you're yeah. not, I think is important. But at the same time, think it, you can fall into a trap of being that step back too much and then you become detached from what's going on around you so there's a there's a balance i mean Joe, look we we've got very complicated minds and brains we we're still trying to learn uh we didn't we when we were born we didn't come out with a manual so as humans we're still we're still trying to learn and understand how we how we do things and why things happen and so forth. But uh, it makes for an interesting journey, doesn't it? It does indeed. And speaking of interesting journeys, like so, the journey of creating this in the, the B two B two C two is what you're talking about, and the, with the Brabham Automotive name. Like, what mm-hmm. was that? What was that like? And how did you have the vision for the car? And sort of just can you explain to me, just I'm out, out of interest, like what what you were going through and the, the creative process behind starting and a, a project like that itself. Yeah, I mean, for first started by, I, I, well, the journey was okay. How do I, how do I get a project up and running? And and someone, someone introduced me to a group in London, and this is separate to let's call it Brabham Automotive and the BT sixty two. But it was the mm. journey on how I got there. And uh, someone said, "Have you thought about crowdfunding?" And I didn't even know what crowdfunding was. And then I met a, a group in London and sat down with them and started talking about it. Um, and then sort of ideas started to kind of flow from that of what we could do. So um, my idea was, you know, to have a race team where fans, drivers and engineers had a lot more access into the goings on. Because uh, I've always felt standing in the pit lane you know, looking looking it out on what goes out on the track, it's very different to what goes on inside the circuit, inside the paddock. You know, with the with the mechanics and the engineers and all the politics and all the the, the stresses that go on. That you're now people are starting to see through Netflix with Drive to Survive. Mm. You know, in 2014, I, I I felt I that was a great opportunity to engage an audience, not just engage, but um, put some kind of ele- uh, educational element to it as well. Um, uh, and so, from a you know creating a portal, fan drivers, engineers, you know a subscription type model, so we could help pay for stuff. And uh, and then of course we did a crowdfunding campaign um, called Project Brabham. Uh, we set a target. I think for two hundred and fifty thousand, and we got in the end we got about three hundred in the end. So. That was a good sort of let's call it initial seed money to to get going, and then it was a case of trying to convince investors that this was a good model, um, and not having ever been in that space before, I had a hell of a lot to learn. Um, and when I think back now of you know that journey and what I was probably like, and the way I sort of came across and communicated, and the way I answered questions. Yeah, I'm sure investors could easily see. Yeah, come back when you when you kind of up and running a bit more and a bit more mature. Because one, it was a different concept. It was new. It was different, yeah. first to market kind of thing. And and so you know, I I soon learned that investors just don't jump in like that. That's a it's a very different world uh, than I that I ever thought. So. Uh, it just we were just going round and round talking to lots of people and getting advice and and trying to, to trying to bring this together. But 
in the end, we we had to find a different way of doing it. So we kind of parked Project Brabham and thought, how else can we do this? So then it was a case of uh, restructuring uh, uh, one of our other businesses in terms of turning it into a sort of brand licensing company where we uh, work with other people on projects that the Brabham name would help to accelerate that project. Um, and then I, I got introduced to a private equity group out of, <clears throat> excuse me, um, out of Adelaide. Uh, and they were already started to look at a project of bringing a high-performance vehicle to market, but they didn't have a brand. Uh, so I got introduced. Uh, I went down to Adelaide. I had a look. Um, and then it, it it all came together. You know, that was the creation of, of Brabham Automotive and bringing the BT62 to market. So we did a lot of, obviously, tests and development in the background before we launched. Um, people didn't know anything about it. We kept it very secretive, and it was a massive surprise when it was said, hey, we have a car. It's called a Brabham, you know. Um, and that was the start start of of, of that journey. So, uh, and that's been a, a challenging journey in many ways as well, starting an automotive company, but it's been extremely rewarding. Uh, learned a lot. You know, to, to, to take a car to market is one thing. To get them built and sold and into customers' hands, you know, that's another kind of milestone. So we've been reaching out sort of milestones in the background um, but we know we've got a long way to go to get to where we want to get to. But you know, the, the company is still still there and still moving forward, which is which is great. You know, and, and from a brand point of view, you know, the car's great. Everyone loves it. Goes when it mm. goes to the racetrack, it's the most popular car in the in the circuit. So, you know, from that point of view, you know, that side of it's working quite well. That's fantastic. So, I mean. It's a question that I like to ask in, in for you, David. Like, if I was to say, okay, the next five, ten years, these are going to be like you could write the book and how they go. And so, like, what would that book look like? What would the chapters look like? And, and where do you see it ending? Not ending, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a good question. Not always easy to answer. I mean, obviously, we want to see uh, Brabham Automotive grow to being, um, you know fully homologated road cars, you know, supercars on the road. Um, we'd like to see the racing programs expand uh, as well uh, along along with that. And there are other projects that we've been looking at in the background uh, away from, let's say, Brabham Automotive, but they're all kind of connected and will all help each other as such. Um, and those things will will take time to, to develop as well as any, any new sort of project like that. So... Um, you know, in 10, 10 years time, um, you know, I've got a kind of vision of where I want to get to, um, just got to keep working day by day to, to do the best you can on the moment, you know? Yeah. And so I mean, would you say you're happy with, with what you've got to so far and, and what you're doing now? Yeah. I mean, look, it's a, if I, if I think back to, you know, when 2012, having finished a court case, uh, and thinking, oh, now what? Now I've got the name. What the hell do I do with it? To where? To fast forward to where I am now, um, a bit like no different to when I started my career in racing. To think what I did and achieved in my racing, I would never have dreamt possible. You know, yeah. so the world of uh, opportunity and possibilities are out there. So um, anything can happen. Yeah, that's that's a great advice for people that want to any sort of like switch any sort of career up if they want to go from even if they want to from a racing driver to to the startup if they want to go from being a teacher to a race mechanic like it's, it's great sort of advice like just look for opportunities in, in a sense yeah and and to to the, the, i think the biggest thing is to believe that those opportunities exist you may not know what they are but they're out there you know um it's very easy to put self doubt in and and close yourself off and then you're not going to see the opportunities so then mm. you convince yourself they're not there um and you know i think a lot of people battle with that they go in and out um some people are much more optimistic um like i said life's a bit complicated um but the human has a great 
way of creating stuff. You know, we are creators, aren't we? At the end of the day, we create our own experience through our thoughts, feelings, emotions, words, and actions. So, um, you know, they are powerful tools to to take you on that journey. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's in, even just to hear that for myself, like doing what I'm doing now and then looking at the avenues I'm going into schools and speaking to students about like sort of what you can do and, and bringing a panel along with that. And it's interesting to to watch the students and how they react and don't react, if anything some mm. to some of the stuff as well and knowing knowing what I was like when I was 16 17 watching someone just come up and speak and it really bored me and it's just trying to find the little things that you could do to improve on on things you didn't like if that makes sense yeah I mean I um you kind of reminded me of when I was racing in America I was part of a group called racers who care and we used to go off to different schools uh, and do a talk mm. and I remember going to one in Ohio because we were racing at um, Mid-Ohio. Um, I think it was in Lexington, I think it was. And it was a school where the kids are either in about to go in jail or not. They're on that spectrum, you mm. know what I mean? And um, when I turned up to the school to do a talk, the lady said to me, um, look, you know, you never quite know what you're going to get with this crowd's there could be a fight in the crowd all of a sudden. There could be all sorts of trouble. Um, and then I think the last speaker that was there ended up talking and then halfway through, students just got up and left, you know. Um, so I was I was sitting there going, oh, God, what have I just got walked into? Um, and I think it was around 2009, actually, when I was with – when I won – or. Yeah, I would have won my mom by that point. Anyway, so obviously I spoke about the cars and things, but I actually talked about the things I'd learned from a sort of personal journey through, like I said, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your words, your actions. Um, and I tried to get the audience involved, and, and, and it must have been a success because no one left. There was no fights. <laughs> <laughs> and I got out alive, you know what I mean? So I was like, yeah. job done um but yeah it was <clears throat> uh quite an interesting experience but you, you you're you right I mean I think I, I've been to people talking and some people get it right some people don't and when you're young your attention span's pretty pretty short anyway yeah um and I think they, they're probably getting shorter by the day uh thanks to social media but um it's uh yeah it's an interesting one yeah, and before we end, I had one more question for you, David. And it was sort of like, um, in terms of like fuels, so like this is something that I'm starting to think more about, and like synthetics, e-fuels, EV. Like, where do you see that going, and, and does Brabham have a a sort of plan for that as well? Yeah, so um, you know, Brabham's always been involved in pioneering thinking and doing things differently, and um, using technology in a smart way. Uh, and and when you look at the landscape now, <clears throat> and we have a lot of conversations about this at the moment because, you know, it's like, well, okay, the, the next car is a road car. Well, what's the power plant? What What's going to drive it? Mm. And you've got such a mix of, of technologies out there now where, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was pretty simple. <laughs> that was a pretty easy decision. Yeah. Now, now it's, you know, the... The governments are, are, are putting rules down. Local councils are, are changing their views on on what can and can't come into into their cities. Uh, it's it's changing all the time, and of course, the advancement of battery technology and synthetic fuels, hydrogen, um, and there's there's probably lots of others we don't even know about yet. Yeah. Uh, that are that are out there, and it becomes quite a minefield, I think, for a small niche manufacturer in particular, or any manufacturer. Where do you put your bets? You know, where where do you commit to? Uh, obviously, recently, e-fuels uh, have kind of been given the green tick in the European Union. You know what I mean? So, uh, it that opens up different opportunities as well, and as these things evolve and change which they will do because we're still very early in, in the development of new energy sources 
um, and everyone scrambling to, to, to get a stronghold in the market as well. So there's a lot of politics going on. So where, where a manufacturer heads its bets, and, and I went to uh, the Cara Tomorrow uh, event in London, the FT Live, listening to all the CEOs of the businesses. And, you know, it's interesting to see Bentley, you know, going electric. That's it, going electric. Yeah. Uh, Peugeot, going electric. They've got their own plants. They've got, they're, they're making their own batteries, you know, things like that. And then you hear, you know, the e-fuel situation all of a sudden change. Well, all the billions going into electric, uh, you know, I'd be sitting there going, "Well, hang on a minute. If 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 e fuels are are, are going to be the go, why are we spending all this money doing that?" Um, I think e fuels are still very much in the early beginnings of it. Um, but the, I think the biggest problem, probably, that's not talked about, and they did talk about it on on that panel that I was watching. Um, I think it was the guy from uh, Chevron in America is that you've got so many vehicles out there dependent on petrol and diesel. How do you decarbonize uh, that fuel for the majority of the world's population of vehicles on the road? You yeah. know, the, it's it, massive compared to the change everyone's trying to make. So the advancements that will come from that will open up different opportunities as well. So, uh, it, it's great to see the world now working, I'd say, together in a, in a, in a collective intent to make change. Yeah. Uh, who wins and loses in those battles as it goes along, I can't tell you, but um, the intent is there to make change and to you know think about planet first, you know, where before it was never never like that. Yeah, no, I mean, because you could go down the route of like Rimac and just strap a bunch of electric motors to your car and it could be really fast or you could do what i think ford are doing and looking at hydrogen as a power plant like i said there's so many yeah, different toyota toyota very much i think mm. put their bets into hydrogen <clears throat> obviously for the big vehicles you know the big heavy vehicles hydrogen makes a lot of sense uh, and the technology uh, is advancing very quickly because the focus is there now to to, to keep improving on those on, on all those different um, platforms of technology. Uh, there's a lot more focus and energy and money going into them. So, um, you know, hydrogen cars. What what what's that going to look like in the future? You know, it's yeah. it's a fascinating and interesting time, but you can get burnt pretty quickly if you don't make the right choice. That's great. I mean, do you you, you guys just you're going, to, you're going to play by ear with them? I go play by ear and, and see what happens. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we. We got to make sure we make the right decision. We've got to do the the market research, talk to customers. You know what what is that next vehicle? What's that going to look like? Um, yeah, we've got some ideas, concepts, and designs already. You know, with Brabham Automotive. Uh, but the the big question is the power plant. What's what's going to drive it? Well, I look forward to seeing seeing what does happen. And 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 just sort of just to end the podcast, we have five quick questions. Uh, David, the first of those being. What was your ultimate three car garage? Probably one would be the Brabham BT19 <laughs> that my dad won um, his third world championship in the Repco Brabham. Repco owned that and it's worth an absolute bomb because only one was ever made. Um, and he was the only driver to win a world championship with a car of his own construction. So that makes that car yeah. more special. Um, the next one, I do like uh, a Lancia Integrale. Yeah, they are pretty cool. They are. They are very cool. Um, and the next one would be uh, the, the the next Brabham on the on the road. Yeah, fantastic. And the next question yeah. is if you got if you have any car to drive on any road or track, but you can only do it once, where would you go and what would you take? Good question. Lots of great tracks, lots of great cars. It would probably depend on my mood on the day, to be fair. Yeah. Um uh 
Yeah, I mean, look, there's too much choice. I'll drive anything on any track, to be fair. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, look, people say, oh, what music do you, are you into? Well, it depends on my mood. You know, simple, you know, uh, for me. But uh, same answer, I think, for, for that question. It's interesting to, to almost to view cars as music or that they give, I guess they give the same thing. They give you a sense of vibration. They give you a sense of beat, uh, yeah. tone. So it's interesting to say that if I'm in a great mood, I drive a car that's got like a quite high revving engine. That's quite quick on the throttle. And if I'm in a quite a slow mood, as you're looking at driving an older, maybe more lethargic car that from the seventies or eighties that has a bit of lag to it. Yeah. And the mood, the mood is for me, that's, <laughs> What I learned more than anything in racing is what mood you're in when you get in that car, because that's going to determine your result. So no different to me with listening to music or driving on the road. If I'm if I find I'm stressed, angry, or whatever, I drive like I drive differently to how I would if I felt calm and and listening to a different type of music. And I'm just I'm not in a rush and I'm sort of driving along. Or if I'm in a rush, I drive differently. And that all depends, that's all governed by my mood on the moment. Um, so, yeah, that's why I always revert back to, well, it depends on my mood. Yeah. And the next question in that case is, I mean, this podcast is all about helping people and showing people what is possible with your passion and love for cars. But the question is, if money was no object and you could do whatever you want tomorrow for a vacation or a job, what would you do? I would love to see uh, the planet from space in whatever form i guess whatever form that happens in. <laughs> just yeah just just to be able to witness that uh for any, like for the astronauts to be up there and and seeing the earth from a different perspective uh and i uh, you know a, a lot of a lot of astronauts talk about this sense of i don't know belonging or oneness and and that every, this is so much bigger than what you can comprehend in your mind, and and they they get a sense of that when they when they're above looking at the at the earth um, from that perspective. It's a very powerful thing, and yeah, that would be cool to have that experience. Yeah, and talk about perspective. The next question is: What would the advice you give to a young person or your or a younger you um, that wants to pursue something with their passion or, or do something? Uh, I would just say, look at the look at yourself in the mirror. Basically, um, so who are you when you look at the mirror? What are you thinking? What are you doing? Is it working? Do you need to change? Do you need to evolve? You know, they're all decisions. But if you look in the mirror and have a good look at yourself, you can judge what your future is. So if you want to, if you want insight to your future take a look at yourself in the mirror and you'll kind of get an idea of where you're headed. If you don't like what you're headed, then change your thinking, change, change, because we can all do that. Uh, not always easy, not always easy. I'm not going to say that, that, that it's an easy thing for, for to do, but uh, that would be, that would be the sort of simple advice I could give. No, it's great. I think that was advice that you could apply to anyone in any situation. Yeah, exactly. got a mirror. Everyone's got a phone. Well, same looking, looking yourself yeah. in the screen, and there you go. You've got, you've got your answer. Um, and the last question is: What I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you love driving, not cars. So I'm going to say, what do you love most? Well, I wouldn't say I don't like cars, but <laughs> you know, my my as a you know as a racing driver, I spent many, 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 many years, you know, sitting behind a car, uh, and what I loved was. One, the experience that the car gave me, didn't matter what it was, it, the car had a limit and you had a limit and trying to match that limit to be as fast as you possibly can um, was something that I really loved as well as, you know, working with the engineers, working with the mechanics, how can we improve? It was always, for me, it was, the car was never quite good enough. We could always improve it. And also I could always improve myself, you know, once I realized, and I've talked about it when, when I was in Adelaide and had that race and my mind, you know, my mind shifted as soon as I had an argument with my dad and my mood changed completely. Uh, that That's when I started to realize how much you could improve yourself 
and worked on that as well as the car and stuff. So I, I was very much fixated on what the experience that the car gave me. As I got older, I appreciated more of the classic cars as well. You know, when I go to Goodwood and I race there and stuff, I, I've noticed I've spent a lot more time looking at those cars more than I used to, you know, when I was still racing and still in my little world, uh, I'd walk past those cars, get in the car and race. You know, yeah. Now I spend time walking around the pits, looking at all the different cars and shapes and designs. And, you know, I have a lot more interest in that now. That's interesting. It's become less of a tool, more of a, more of an object of desire, if anything. Yeah. 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 Cool. Oh, well, David, I thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure to to get to know a bit more of you about your story and, and hopefully it's helped some people, but, but thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, I wanted to start off this episode in a different way. We were, thanks to you guys listening, in the top 10% of podcasts most shared globally, which is so impressive and means so much to me for a podcast that is less than a year old. Still, I want to set you a challenge of getting into that top 1%. So if you have ever enjoyed an episode or thought that the message from a guest was worth sharing, please send that episode to your friends. If you know someone that loves cars and is looking to get into the industry or change careers, help give them some inspiration. And speaking of inspiration, let's see what we got today. 